In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, if you'll turn there. Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse number 2. Mark 9, verse number 2, the Bible says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. At once they looked around. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them ex anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come, from, must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come and restore all things, and yet how is it? How is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wish, just as it is written of him. Would you take a moment or two to ponder? Ponder on those verses. I want to begin by suggesting that what we just read here is one of the most critical moments in the ministry of Jesus. It is a critical moment in confirming his identity, it is a critical moment in confirming the fact that he is the Messiah and the very Son of God. In fact, not only is it a critical moment in confirming the identity of Jesus, but it is also a critical moment in confirming the identity of John the Baptist. And before we spend some moments really breaking these verses down and noticing that, I would like to first begin by spending some time talking with you about the geography or the location of this grand event. Going back to Mark chapter 9 and verse number 2, notice how this marvelous and grand event took place on a very high mountain. Question, what mountain? Which mountain? Which mountain exactly did this glorious event take place? Believe it or not, but that is a common question that is asked by many Bible students today. And while the Bible does leave this question unanswered, let me offer to you two very possible and common suggestions. First, one common and possible suggestion that many scholars offer as to the exact mountain where this glorious event took place is Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor. You see, Mount Tabor is a dome-shaped mountain in the Jezreel Valley of Galilee. 
I have it marked on the map for you. It is actually six miles east of Nazareth. Remember, Nazareth was the town where Jesus was, was raised. It is also 11 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, the Sea of Galilee or near the Sea of Galilee is where Jesus did about 70% of his ministry. The Sea of Galilee was the sea that Jesus miraculously calmed a storm. The Sea of Galilee is the sea that Jesus miraculously walked on. Mount Tabor or Tabor is 11 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And as you can see on the map, it is located in the northern part of Galilee, not far from also the area of Samaria. It's in the lower part of Galilee, south of Capernaum, Chorazin, and Magdala. We studied those places in our last study. Mount Tabor or Tabor, many people say the name in, in a couple of different ways. Well, Mount Tabor is actually mentioned in your Old Testament quite a bit. I challenge you to, to do a, a word search and notice how often this mountain is mentioned in the Old Testament. It is mentioned in the Psalms, it's mentioned in the prophets, but probably its most famous mention in the Old Testament is in the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 4, the Bible tells us that the Israelites experienced a great victory over Sisera, a general or a military leader for the Canaanites. They experienced a great victory over him and his army near this mountain. This took place during the time of the judge Deborah and the great Israelite military leader named Barak. Under the leadership of Deborah and Barak, Israel experienced a great victory over the Canaanites near Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is around 1,900 miles above sea level. It is certainly not the highest mountain in Israel, but even though it is not near the highest mountain in Israel because of its location, because it is located at the southern port of southern part of Galilee, you can actually see it from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, notice, is located in Judea. It's located in the southern part of Israel. But because Mount Tabor is located in the southern part of Galilee, even from Jerusalem, and as you're traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem, you can always see this mountain. And so Jesus would have seen this mountain and traveled near this mountain several times in his three-year ministry. Now, one common suggestion is Mount Tabor is likely the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. That is a possible, a possible mountain, but another possible mountain and the most common mountain that is suggested is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is typically the mountain that many scholars suggest where Jesus was transfigured. And I'll explain to you why as we, as we keep going, why this is more than likely, not 100% certain, but very likely the mountain where this took place. You see, Mount Hermon is the highest point in Israel. It is the highest mountain in Israel. It is actually over 9,000 feet above sea level. At the southern base of Mount Hermon is Caesarea Philippi. 
Now, that city is very important. This is not the same Caesarea that Cornelius was from, according to Acts chapter 10. We'll have a separate study on that Caesarea. This Caesarea was the Caesarea where Jesus was when he uttered his famous words in Matthew 16 and verse 18, where he says, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. When you look at Matthew 16 and verse 13, you see that it was in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus asked his apostles, who do people say that I am? And some of the apostles said, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? And, they, and Peter said, you are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. That dialogue, that conversation took place at Caesarea Philippi. That actually took place when we go back to the Gospel of Mark, and we read from Mark chapter 9 to start our study. Remember in Mark chapter 9 in verse 2, it says six days later, Jesus took his apostles or three of his apostles on a very high mountain. Six days later from what? Well, six days later from the events described in Mark chapter 8. Six days later, from Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse number 27, where the Bible says that Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his apostles, who do people say that I am? It was six days later from that event. Now, because it was six days later, almost a week later, where when Jesus took them on the mountain and was transfigured, it was very likely that by that time he could have made it back to the lower part of Galilee and transfigured at Mount Tabor. That's very likely. That's very possible. And it's also possible that he could have still been in Caesarea Philippi and he could have, because of convenience, went to Mount Hermon and been transfigured at Mount Hermon since Caesarea Philippi is located at the southern base of Mount Hermon. But because of its location, because Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi and then six days later he was transfigured on a mountain, most believe or suggest that Mount Hermon was where this took place. Again, we don't know 100% for sure, but we're just throwing out some possibilities. Now, another thing you need to know about Mount Hermon is a lot of paganism and idolatry what was practiced near this mountain. Paganism and idolatry were very prevalent near Mount Hermon in the ancient times. You see, according to what you have on the slide there, and I'll show you some pictures of this, here at Mount Hermon, you had many altars and many temples to false gods were, were made around this mountain. Many innocent children were sacrificed to false gods near and around this mountain. Paganism was a big part of Caesarea Philippi, and it was practiced near this mountain in the ancient world. And it is commonly thought, again, because of its location, it is commonly thought to be the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. And so let me show you a few pictures of, of this. And I want to start with what I was able to see when I went to Caesarea Philippi. We spent a day in our trip to Israel back in 2015 in Caesarea Philippi. Again, I was with a group of Christians between 20 and 25 disciples. Uh, on one particular day, uh, we went to Caesarea Philippi. We went to the northern part of Israel. Caesarea Philippi is a city that is, is near the city of Dan. 
city of Dan is the northern, it's one of the northern cities in Israel, and it is not far from Caesarea Philippi. According to what we find in Mark chapter 8 and in Matthew 16, and also in Luke chapter 9, we see that Jesus did spend time in Caesarea Philippi. Now, one of the more interesting things we saw in Caesarea Philippi was the Temple of Pan. The Temple of Pan. Pan was one of the Greek quote-unquote gods in the ancient world. Pan had a temple where people worshipped him in Caesarea Philippi. I, I don't have a lot of time to go into a lot of details about Pan and his temple. I would recommend you Google that and do some research on it and notice all of just all of the ridiculous and crazy acts of worship that were done at this temple in the ancient world. Uh, the temple of Pan uh, was a place, part of their worship was offering their children up to this false god. A lot of human sacrifices. Human sacrifice was part of the worship in this place. And probably one of the most fascinating things about this area where this temple was, and even just the, Ces the, the city of Caesarea Philippi, is, is the rock formations. Caesarea Philippi has some just incredible rock formations that were located around the city. And as I saw these incredible rock formations, I couldn't help but be mindful of the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 18, when him and his apostles are in this city, they're in Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus says, upon this rock, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, obviously, when Jesus talks about the rock there, he's not talking about a literal rock. He's talking about, based upon his identity, the confession that was made by Peter, that he is the Christ and the Son of the living God, we know he's not talking about a literal rock when he makes that statement, but it is still interesting language he uses there. It is still an Ill interesting illustration that Jesus uses to talk about a rock, especially when you consider Caesarea Philippi was a place that had some amazing rock formations that we were able to see when we were there. Now, I thought as I was digging through my pictures and I was looking through my pictures of what we saw in Caesarea Philippi and what we saw when we went to the, to the area of the Temple of Pan. I, I thought I had some pictures of Mount Hermon and Mount Tabor. And I, I, did, I dug for several minutes and I just could not find any of my pictures. I, I'm pretty sure I at least took some pictures of Mount Hermon. I could not locate those. And so what I had just had to do is, is find a couple of pictures from the Internet to show you so you can at least get a visual, a real visual of what these mountains look like. So these next two pictures I'm showing you are pictures that I dug from the internet. Now this right here is Mount Tabor. This right here is Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor, again, is in the southern part of Galilee. Uh, this is one possible place where Jesus could have been transfigured but the most popular thought is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is, if you remember, the highest point in Israel, 9,000 feet, about 9,000 feet above sea level. It is north of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is at the southern base of Mount Hermon. 
and this would have been northeast Galilee. This is another uh, very possible mountain where Jesus was transfigured. Many people believe that this was the mountain due to the fact that Jesus was already in the area of Caesarea Philippi six days prior to his transfiguration. Now, those are some visuals to kind of just give you an idea of the mountains that we're, that we're considering. But for the rest of the study, what I want to do is not so much look at pictures anymore, is I really want to go back to the text and break down the text. I want to go back to Mark chapter 9. I want to spend the next few minutes breaking down Mark chapter 9, showing you to the best of my ability why this chapter and this moment is so important, and then conclude with some practical lessons I think we can take away from this section. So go back to Mark chapter 9. Go back to Mark chapter 9. You may also want to go over to Matthew chapter 17. Put your Bible marker in Matthew 17. Also Luke chapter 9. You can put a Bible marker or mark your place there also because both in Matthew 17, Luke chapter 9, and Mark chapter 9, those are the three places in the gospel where we can read about this event. But Mark 9 would be the main text we consider. Here back in Mark chapter 9 and verses 2 through 3. Look at verses 2 through 3. There in verses 2 through 3, in the context, we find the Lord Jesus Christ after leaving Caesarea Philippi. He takes three of the apostles. These are the three that he was the closest to, it appears. Peter, James, and John. He takes three of the apostles and he goes up on a very high mountain. Maybe Mount Tabor. Maybe Mount Hermon, we don't know for sure. All we know is it was a very high mountain. And when they get to a, a place on the mountain, Jesus is transfigured. He's transfigured. The idea of being transfigured is he's changed. He is glorified in some way. He appears to them in a majestic, in a majestic way. Verse 3 says, his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Jesus appears to these three apostles in a glorious state. He is transfigured before them. And I want to submit that this moment is a critical moment because it verified the identity of Jesus. It verified what took place in the previous chapter when Peter said to Jesus, after Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. This moment here verifies that the words of Peter were true. In fact, go over, and I've told you to mark several places. Let me give you another one here and get a copy of the outline because I do, I do have all these verses in, in the outline that you can download. In 2 Peter chapter 1, in 2 Peter 1, this moment was so important to Peter and was so memorable for Peter that he mentions it in 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter 1 and verse 16, he says, for we, and here he's talking about himself and the other apostles, people like the apostle John, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says we saw the majesty of Jesus. We're not just telling you about it. We're saying we were eyewitnesses of it. 
We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What majesty? Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the what? On the holy mountain. Notice how here Peter, Peter is talking about what he saw on the mountain. He's talking about the transfiguration. He is saying to these Christians, you can believe that you're following the true Messiah, the only Messiah, the real Messiah. You can trust that because we saw him revealed to us in his glory on the mountain. Here, Peter is saying that Jesus' transfiguration is one of the proofs that was given to them and to us to confirm that he is the son of God, that he is the Christ, that he is the Lord. The apostles, three of the apostles saw Jesus transfigured in a, into a majestic and glorious state on the mountain. In fact, not only did they see Jesus transfigured on the mountain, but going back to Mark 9, notice how the scripture also tells us that they saw Jesus talking to two people. They saw him talking to two people on the mountain, two people who had been dead for a long period of time. Who were the two people? Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, the apostles, also saw Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah in his transfigured state. And someone says, well, how, do we, how did they know that was Moses and Elijah? They had never seen them before. Well, all I can say to that, my friend, is I don't know how they knew that. The Bible doesn't say how exactly they knew that. Maybe they just listened to the conversation and figured it out. I don't know. All I do know, according to the text, is some kind of way they did know. That is who Jesus was talking to. They were talking. He was talking to Moses and Elijah. And it is interesting how as Jesus is talking to them, Moses and Elijah are Moses and Elijah. Someone says, what's your point? Well, my point is, is even in the afterlife, even though they had been dead for several years, they're still Moses and Elijah. They retained their identity. And just like they retained their identity, guess what? We're also going to retain our identity in the next life. Sean Jeffries will still be Sean Jeffries. You're still who you're going to be whoever you are. Moses and Elijah was still Moses and Elijah, even though they had been dead for a long time. Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah and someone says, well. Well, why, why, why were they there? Why were they? Why were these two people there? I mean, uh, out of all the great people that are found in the Old Testament, why these two guys? Why not David and Abraham? Why not David and Isaiah? Why not Isaiah and Jeremiah? Why not Moses and Samuel? Why these two guys? Someone says, well, the reason why Moses and Elijah are there because one represented the law and one represented the prophets. Someone says Moses and Elijah were there because they represented what encompassed the Old Testament during that time. 
Well, my dear friend, while that may sound good, and while that may be a common thought, I want to suggest that it may not be correct. It may be assuming too much. You see, we got to understand something. That as Bible students, we always strive to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. And we may be assuming too much to say that the reason why Moses and Elijah were there was because one represented the law and, represent, and one represented the prophets. In fact, the truth is never in the Bible one time does Elijah represent all the prophets. Elijah never represents all the prophets in the Bible. In fact, you search your Old Testament and you'll easily see that there were even many prophets in Israel before Elijah. Samuel was, was a prophet before Elijah was. You see, instead of assuming something that the Bible doesn't say, let's just allow the Bible to tell us why they were there. Going back to Luke chapter 9 and in verse number 31, the Bible tells us that the main reason why these two men were there was because they were talking to Jesus about his departure. They were talking to Jesus about his death that was going to take place in Jerusalem. That is a critical thing to understand. In fact, once we understand that, and once we understand that this event was mainly designed to confirm the identity of Jesus, then we're also going to be able to see that the main reason why these two specific men showed up on the mountain was because both of them were clearly tied to the works of Jesus and John the Baptist. Both of these men represented the works of Jesus and John the Baptist. Elijah was a type of John the Baptist, and Moses was a type of Jesus. You see, this text is a lot more complicated than we may realize. We got to study the whole context to really see what's going on there. This is a rich incident taking place in the life of Jesus. And I want to keep showing you that. Well, back to Mark chapter 9. Jesus is transfigured. Moses and Elijah show up talking with Jesus about his departure. And in verses 5 through 6, Peter makes a suggestion. Impulsive Peter. Shouldn't we, should we be surprised by that, really? Peter says, oh, Lord, it's great to be here. This is great. Let's make three tabernacles. One for you, Lord, and one for Moses. Notice he knew it was Moses, and one for Elijah. He knew that was Elijah some kind of way. He said, let's make three tabernacles to honor the three of you. Someone says, why did Peter say that? Well, the Bible says the reason why Peter said that was because he didn't know what else to say. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 9 that Peter said that not realizing even what he was saying. You ever fell into that trap before? You ever found yourself in a situation where you have a lot of uncomfortable silence and, 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 and you're kind of just amazed by your, the situation you're in and you say some kind of dumb. You say something stupid. You say something that you don't even understand what you're saying. You're just throwing some out. That was Peter. 
He said something without even thinking. He didn't, he didn't even realize what he was saying. That's what the Bible says. That's how amazed he was by what he was saying. But, but after that suggestion from the impulsive Peter, verse number seven says that God spoke directly out of heaven. That is God the Father. God the Father said directly from heaven, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Let me ask you something. How many times in the Bible can we actually read about God the Father speaking directly out of heaven? Not many. I mean, there's that episode in the Old Testament where God spoke directly from heaven when the children of Israel were gathered around Mount Sinai. And when the children of Israel heard the voice of God, they were terrified. They were gripped with fear. And they told Moses, you talk to God from now on. We don't want to hear God speak anymore. There's also the incident that took place at the baptism of Jesus, wherein after Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove, and God the Father spoke directly out of heaven, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then there's also a, another episode in John 12 and verse 28, when after Jesus said a prayer, God spoke directly out of heaven, and many of the Jews heard the voice of God. There, there aren't but just a few times when we can read about God the Father speaking directly out of heaven. And this event at the mountain when Jesus was transfigured is one of those moments. But let me ask you this now. Why did God speak here? I mean, out of all the times when God could speak directly out of heaven, why now? Well, again, it goes back to the main point of this event. The main point of this event was to confirm the identity of Jesus. It was to confirm to Peter and James and John that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the one that Moses spoke of in the book of Deuteronomy. That's another reason why Moses is there. Do you remember Deuteronomy 18 and verse number 15? When you see Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15, there is no doubt that God is using the language he uses because he wants the apostles to, to hearken back to what Moses foretold. And Deuteronomy 18 and verse number 15, Moses said this to the children of Israel. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall what? You shall listen to him. Moses said, I am a prophet, but there's coming a greater prophet than me. There's coming someone who is way more majestic and, and superior than I am. And that person who comes from among the Israelites, this chief prophet, that is who you need to listen to. You need to listen to him even above me. That's what Moses said. And God here at the mountain reminds the apostles of the words of Moses. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is the one that Moses said you need to listen to. This is him right here. That's the point. God confirmed that Jesus is the fulfillment 
of the words of Moses. God said that from heaven. And the apostles, when they heard the voice of God, they were terrified. In fact, not only were they terrified, but they were also very puzzled. They were puzzled by this event. So go back to Mark 9 again. And notice how after God spoke from heaven in verse 7, in verse 8 it says, All at once, at once they looked around and saw no one with them except Jesus alone. This is the fulfillment of the words of Moses in Deuteronomy. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Why did he want them to be quiet? Because he didn't want to die too soon. If the apostles went around blasting and telling everybody what they saw on the mountain, if they went around telling everybody that somebody is here who is more superior than Moses, Jesus wouldn't have made it much longer. That was a dangerous message to go around saying that this guy, Jesus, is more superior than Moses. That's dangerous. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this until I rise from the dead. I got more work to do. There is a specific time table for me that my father has put in place. Verse 10, it says, they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. Notice how the apostles, they're puzzled. They're puzzled about this. In fact, going to verse 11 now, notice how after coming down from the mountain, they ask Jesus a question, and they ask him about Elijah. They want to know about Elijah. We saw Elijah up there. We want to know about him. Notice, they don't ask about Moses. Why don't they ask about Moses? Because they understood why Moses was up there. They understood Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15. They knew that Moses was there because he was a type of Christ. He represented the work of Christ. He was the prophet who said that a greater prophet was coming and God confirmed that Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. They knew why Moses was there. But they didn't understand why Elijah was there. Why in the world is Elijah there? I, I, I mean, didn't the prophets say that Elijah was supposed to come before you, Jesus? Didn't the prophets say that Elijah was supposed to show up before the Messiah came? So why is it backwards? Why were you here first? And then we see Elijah on the mountain. You see, the apostles, like many of the Jews, were thinking of a literal return of Elijah. They thought Elijah literally was going to come back, the same Elijah who was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. In the Old Testament, they thought he was literally going to come back because Malachi said that Elijah was going to return or was going to come onto the scene before the coming of the Messiah. That's how the Old Testament closes. And Malachi, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, the Old Testament closes with these words. Behold, I'm sending to you Elijah the prophet. Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Notice how the Old Testament closes by saying that Elijah was going to show up before the Messiah. He was going to show up and the apostles would know, why is this backwards here? Why did you come and then we don't see Elijah until now? And in verse 12, Jesus answers them. Jesus answered them by saying, Elijah did come before me. And they killed him. 
They killed him. They did whatever they wanted to do to him. You put that with what Matthew says over in Matthew 17. In Matthew 17 and verse 13, after Jesus made that statement, it says the disciples understood that he spoke to them about who? About John the Baptist. The Elijah to come was John the Baptist. Not that John the Baptist was literally Elijah, but John the Baptist came like Elijah. He came with strong preaching and courage and boldness. He even looked rough and kind of tough like Elijah did. He came like Elijah. He was the Elijah to come. That's why Elijah and Moses were on that mountain. They were on that mountain to confirm the identity of Jesus. They were on that mountain to demonstrate how Elijah was a type of John the Baptist and Moses was a type of Jesus. The words of the prophets concerning Elijah and the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 18 came to pass. John the Baptist came. He was like Elijah and he prepared the way for the prophet. That's why that took place on the mountain. And the apostles began to understand that. They understood that Elijah represented the work of John. And Moses represented the work of Jesus. This event confirmed to them that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. The question is, what can we learn? What can we learn from this very rich moment? that may have taken place at Mount Hermon or Mount Tabor or some other mountain. What can we learn from the transfiguration? Three quick lessons. First, from this we learn that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Whether you agree with what we studied this morning or not, can you at least take that away? Can we at least agree on that? Can we at least agree that when those apostles came down off that mountain, they knew that Jesus was the Christ. They knew that he was the prophet that Moses spoke of. They knew that John came in the, in the way of Elijah. They knew the words of the prophets were being fulfilled. After this moment on the mountain, there was no doubt Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. As John the Baptist said in John 1 and verse 29, Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. There is no doubt after witnessing what they saw on the mountain, that the words of the forerunner John were true. We're following the Christ when we follow Jesus. And then a second lesson we learn from this is we need to listen to Jesus. That's what Moses told us to do 1,500 years prior to the coming of Jesus. And that's what God the Father directly said from heaven on the mountain. Listen to him. This is who you need to listen to. Jesus, listen to my son. I'm pleased with him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. One of the key lessons from the transfiguration is we need to listen to Jesus. We can never go wrong when we listen carefully to what he has to say because his words are true. We need to listen to Jesus, and not only do we need to listen to him, but more importantly, 
or equally important, we need to follow him. We need to listen to Jesus and we need to follow Jesus. And I got to tell you, this is where many of the religious leaders in the time of Jesus went wrong. This is where they blew it. While many of them heard his teaching and even listened to his teaching, they rejected him. They rejected the supernatural evidence he provided. They rejected his teaching. They rejected what he stood for and his standard. That's why they killed him. That's why they did to him the exact same thing that happened to John. Jesus said that they were going to kill him. They were going to reject him and do to him exactly what they did to John. And we got to make sure we learn from their mistake. We need to listen to Jesus. And not only listen, but follow him with all our hearts. Do exactly what he says. Because he is the Christ. Now, I hope that study will, will help you. I hope you can see that several times in the gospel, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on that sometimes we don't even realize. The gospels are, are, are a lot richer than people realize. There's a lot going on behind the scenes. And I hope studies like this will challenge us all to continue to study the gospels very closely to continue to study the Old Testament so the Gospels can make more sense to us and we can draw more lessons out of it. But more importantly, I hope lessons like this will strengthen our faith in Jesus and draw us closer to him because there is no doubt that he is the only way to heaven. Thank you for studying with me this morning. May God bless you. Look forward to, I look forward to our next study.